Hi, I'm Amy, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us tonight. Um, so if you could turn with me to Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, let's... Uh... Join in prayer and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your promises, for the fulfillment of your promises in Christ. Please, Father, help us to know more of your goodness, your grace this night. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace something undeserved. 2002 Salt Lake City, Winter Olympics. Stephen Bradbury, an Australian, a Queenslander, wins the speed ice skating. How does an Australian win that? We hardly got any ice here at all. But what happened was in the finals, he was coming last, fifth, way behind. And in the last corner, the first skater hit the second one, and then the third and the fourth, boom, all in the last corner. And then Stephen Bradbury just <laughs> skated past, and before he even knew it, he got gold. Now, some of you may not know this. The only reason why he got into the final was, in the semis, exactly the same thing happened. <laughs> now, you know how uh, Americans are like when they get on the podium to get their gold medal? Yeah, look at me. When they gave the gold medal onto Stephen Bradbury, he went, <laughs> Grace, nothing I deserved. But how does God's grace get sinful people to live in line with God? Jesus died for your sins, past, present, and future. He sees you as, as, as completely clean, completely forgiven. So why not continue to sin? Nothing in all that we do, all our godliness, none of that contributes to salvation. So why bother to live for God? God just wants to come and give you one big hug. God loves you unconditionally. He accepts you just as you are. Come as you are. Why not remain as you are? This is what some people call the hyper-grace doctrine. And it's around in many forms around our world. How do we stop grace, the grace of God, from turning into this hyper-grace doctrine? Titus chapter 2 tells us, in verse 1 to 10 we see the godliness of life, the, the life in line with God that we are to live. And then in verse 11 through to the end is the basis, is the foundation. And that foundation is the grace of God. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. But you, Titus, in contrast to the legalistic Christianity of last night, the cultural Christianity of last night, the false teachers, with their false teaching as well as their false living, you, Titus, you to be different. Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And at the end of the chapter, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. These are important things to teach. Well, what is this sound doctrine? In verse 1, this is the heading for the whole passage in 1 to 10. Sound doctrine, if you look at your footnotes, I don't know if you have footnotes in your printing, but you know, look at your phone, look at your Bible. It's actually healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine. Like Proverbs chapter 3, is one of the famous verses in Proverbs coming up on the screen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, make your, he'll make, your straight, uh, make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, like Eve was. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. There's the way of living the, the godly life, the life in line with God, the, the sound, the wise life in Proverbs. It's healthy. It's good for you. You know, like every now and then I go for a run, and I remember a year or two ago when I went for a run, you know, it felt good when I came home. You know, the hamstrings are stretched, the arteries are pumping, and I get in the door, and my daughter Stephanie said, Hey, Dad, you feel like you can conquer the world now? Yeah, I do, actually. You feel, you feel healthy. Well, this is the healthy doctrine, the way to live that's actually not just good morally, not just good in terms of it's a godly, God-pleasing way of life, but good because it's actually good for you. It's the healthy way of living. But here in Titus chapter 2, this healthy living is not so much Healthy, because like Proverbs, it's in line with creation. God who made the world, heart wide is wisdom into the world, and so you live according to this way. That's a good, healthy way of living. It's not only because of that, but because of salvation. In line with salvation. That's why it's so healthy. And so throughout this passage, the word sound or healthy keeps coming up. So if you look at verse 2, sound in faith. In love, in steadfastness. In verse 8, sound in speech. It's actually a God way, a good way for you to live, healthy. And more than that, point 2b, it's in sync with the gospel word. You see in verse 5, the young Christian women are to live a certain way so that the word of God will not be reviled. If they live this way, great. If they don't live this way, then people, even non-Christians, would somehow speak badly, and rightly so, speak badly against the gospel. Are you Christians? You're even worse than the rest. Or in verse 7, Titus is to be a model of good works, so that, verse 8, the opponents have nothing evil to say about us. Verse 5, verse 7 and 8, assume the negative taint on the gospel if we don't live this healthy doctrine. But there's a positive effect as well. If people do live out this healthy doctrine, verse 9, as slaves serve faithfully so that in every way they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour to actually make it beautiful. It's actually a positive if you live this way. Oh, those Christians, they're so different. I wish I could be like that. If only my family, if only my workplace was like that. This is the healthy way of living in sync with the gospel. I was reminded, I was having dinner with uh, Philip Jensen, and he reminded me that the word godliness, uh, like we looked at in chapter 1, verse 1, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Poor servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, it's actually the word um, piety or the word religion. This is a way of living, this is a knowledge of the truth that should be in line with religion, with true religion. 
with the religion of God, with the religion of God, our Saviour. And it becomes clear here in chapter 2, verse 9, that that's what this godliness is about. For the slaves, as they live faithfully, they adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. This is the religion that we're talking about that we're to live in line with. Now, let's see what this healthy lifestyle is to be like. I'm not going to cover all those uh, details. Uh, talk about some common ones and then talk about some harder to understand ones. Actually, not harder to understand, but perhaps harder for us to accept. It starts off talking about the family. I think the whole of it is about family. Even when it gets down to slaves, I think it's about the household, for they had household slaves like you know, Downton Abbey and um, you know, some of you have maids back in uh, Asia. This is about family life. It should come as no surprise because last night in chapter 1, verse 11, the false teachers were upsetting whole families. Well, he's the way to get life right for the families. Men are dressed old and young. Women are dressed old and young. There are specific distinct things for each group, but there's a, something that's common. So in verse 6a and verse 3a, there's the word likewise, common godliness of character for all. And the one that I found was actually almost in all of them is the word, the phrase, self-controlled. Verse 2, the old men are to be self-controlled. Verse 5, the young women, and presumably the old women who are meant to teach a model to the young women. And then in verse 6, the young men. What does it mean to be self-controlled? It means the idea of restraint. You know, not being foolish, not just doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it. It is the idea of not being like that Cretan culture. Remember, they were liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what you do when you do whatever you feel like doing. But instead, these Christians had to be self-controlled, look at chapter 2, verse 3, in their speech. Not to be slanderous, these women. Not mean girls, you know, nasty rumours. You know, just passing on this thing you know, as a prayer point exaggerating to put other people down. You see, not liars like the Cretans were. They're to be self-controlling their action. Chapter 2, verse 2. Sober-minded, dignified, clear-headed, not just level-headed, you know, weighing the consequences of your action before you do it. Unlike the Cretans, who were evil and violent brutes. They're to be self-controlled in their appetites. Chapter 2, verse 2, sober-minded in terms of alcohol. Even the women, verse 3, are not to be enslaved to alcohol. Often we think of the men getting drunk, but we know women can be just a couple of glasses each night just to calm themselves down, and before you know it, they are addicted to the alcohol, dependent on it. Control in their appetites. Not like the Cretans, who were gluttons. And then lastly, self-controlled in terms of Perseverance, verse 2. Not giving up when it gets hard, but self-control and sound as they act in love and steadfastness, unlike the lazy Cretan culture. This is very different from our pagan partying culture as well, isn't it? That much is, is true for all of them. But for the men especially, chapter 2, verse 2, they are to be those who have sober-mindedness, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, steadfastness. Uh, such a person will make a great father, a great husband, even a great grandfather. It is very different from that picture of, you know, you know the old norm, you know, the commercials are sitting there, lazy, selfish, drunk, just watching TV all day. Young men, you are to be like this as well. But what about the women? The women get, I think, a, a bit more of an instruction, always do in Paul's letters, I don't know why. Maybe the men can't take too much at one time. Verse 3 to 5 is what the older women are to teach the younger women. I don't think it means doing it on seminars. I think it's about, in real life, modelling real life, especially as they teach about family relationships. And lots of the require a lot of self-control. 
And a lot of it is very counter-cultural. And he begins to rub on some of our culture, and even maybe some of us. Verse 4, they're to love their husbands. Notice you have to be commanded to love your husbands. Now your boyfriend after the six, 18 months limerence when you're, you know, just, ah, love blind. After that, you know you have to be commanded to love him. <laughs> Submissive to your own husbands. Ephesians chapter 5 as well. Uh, my daughter Stephanie was teaching in uh, Alex's school and teaching uh, biblical studies to year nine girls. And she was talking about marriage. And she said, look, in the Bible, you have to be submissive. And before she even stopped, oh, all the whole crowd of year nine girls got really upset. Submissive? What? You know, how can that be? You mean I got to do something for him that I don't want to do? Got to make a sacrifice in marriage? Ah, come on, what are you on about? That's the culture of our day. Again, you've got to be reminded that submissiveness does not mean a lesser person, but rather you actually put yourself under the responsible, loving authority of your husband. It's an attitude, it's a respect. It's a following of him and his lead. There is difference, though, between husband and wife. Now, for our Asian friends, just to uh, help you see that it's not being the traditional Asian kind of wife, not that kind of submissiveness either. Where, you know, bounded feet, shut up, be silent, just look pretty. No, no, in Proverbs it talks about having a wise wife is the good idea. Well, if you have a wise wife, you've got to get some of her suggestions to husbands, but also to children. And this is where I think it becomes a bit more close to home for us. Verse 4, to love children. Again, it's not natural. Some of us may be clucky and love uh, babies, they're all very cute, except at 2 a.m. at night when they're crying, when there's two of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's a phrase here in verse uh, 4 and 5, 5, they're to be self-controlled, pure and working at home. Just one word here, it doesn't appear very often at all. It's the idea of being a domestic, a focus on the family, on the home. That is, there's a difference between the role of the father and the role of the mother. It doesn't mean that you can't do any financial earning work. After all, remember the woman in Proverbs chapter 31, uh, kids are coming up the screen with that, that a woman, an excellent wife who can find, I found her, so you don't worry about trying to find her. But we some life who can find. But <laughs> she is here, so anyway. Um, she does everything, right? This uh, woman, uh, she's a bit of a real estate agent. She sews, she sells. She almost does everything except for sleep, really. <laughs> but notice why she does some of the money-earning work. Notice in verse uh, 27, she's not afraid of the snow for her household. Her household are clothed in scarlet. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and praises her. See, it's not a woman who's doing all these things to chase her career. Right, little kids, though, they work it out. Now, when mummy really wants to find herself and be someone in, out there in the workforce to make herself a name in her career... They feel it. They know that they are actually second to the mum's career. Such children would not rise up and call her blessed. But this woman, she's praised by her children, by her husband. And verse 30, 31, she's the one who actually fears the Lord. There is a focus on the family and to be busy at home as the woman lives out her godliness. Now, for us, some of what it might mean is that even if we do some part-time work, we've got to keep asking the question, how would taking that job or taking those few more hours, how would that affect my love for my husband and my love for my children? And then he said, you know, if we have to get a mortgage, can we actually get a mortgage on the husband's income? 
rather than be forced to a double income and then I have to be out there earning all this money. Oh, we do it for the kids, of course. But what's the best thing for the kids? Again, again, even science shows us that the first few months, the first few years, they're the most important for the mum especially to be at home with the kids. That's where their security and, and everything about them is, is built into them. Here is the healthy way of living. A bit of an aside in terms of application for us uh, women at Lyft, it's important to see that there's a responsibility here which I think even takes over, at least for certain years of your life, public ministry. It's very easy for us to think that ministry equals 1.5 hours reading the Bible with someone across the table having coffee. When you have children, it's hard to do that kind of one-to-one -one ministry, when, especially when they're little kids. Uh, my wife was following up that eight or nine girls, and then suddenly she got twins. And then she only followed up two girls. And she wasn't opening the Bible with too many of them. They would need help in lots of different ways. But the hours that she put in, in looking after them, that is actually great for them. And it is ministry. And yes, you do teach the word of God. But it is caring and seeking to help them to grow in godliness as well as all the other ways. I remember I was at a midi conference one year and my wife came along with the two little twins. I remember Philip saying to my wife, if you never this week have a deep and meaningful conversation with anyone, don't worry. By you just sitting there looking after the kids, you're actually teaching the girls around what motherhood is like. That is ministry. If you want to head off and be a full-time gospel preacher, ladies, then stay single. If you're going to have children, then your ministry is to them. Think of it this way. Your husband is paying you to do full-time ministry to your children. Isn't that great? <laughs> Family. But what about work? Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10 speaks to bond servants. We apply it to work, but again, should we apply it to uh, maids, uh, Downton Abbey uh, slaves down the bottom there in the dungeon, submissive to their own masters? For us, as employers in work, we are to be those who are submissive, who are honest. Submissive to their own masters and everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith. Not dodgy deals. Uh, one of our friends, um, Phil Wheeler, he used to say that um, he knows of a workplace where they're all just you know, playing computer games when the boss is not watching. And then when, as soon as the boss comes in, there's this button on the computer that they call the boss button. Press the boss button, all these graphs come up. <laughs> that is not the way to steal time from your boss. You know from your own uh, field that you, know, you can cut corners all kinds of different ways, can't you? Nowhere to show all good faith. Again, a bit of an aside, there's a certain value to work here, isn't there? That it can actually adorn the gospel if you do it faithfully, diligently, honestly. That is, we are not to be slack, but faithful. In terms of work at uni, I think part of being faithful is turn up to your lectures, your tutes, and then they say, every hour you spend FaceTime with them, another hour reading, isn't it? That's without your assignments. That is being faithful. It's very easy to just hang out with our Christian friends. It's not just fun, it's fellowship, isn't it? It's Christian friends. <laughs> and almost the idea, you know, the closer I get to 50%, the more godly I am. No, no, we're to be faithful. Some of us in being faithful will get HD. Some of us in being faithful will just pass. But faithfulness is what's called for. Not be slack. But on the other hand, not chasing success either. A lot of Christians um, want to say, if I'm really successful in my field, you know, like the top engineer, and then when I go to work, 
then everyone will say, oh, that person is a Christian as well. I want to follow Jesus. You, know, you get that idea? If I, I really glorify God in my work when I do it really, really successfully in the world's terms. And it has to be you know, that kind of professional work for people to look up to me. But notice here in verse 9 and 10, who it is that adorns the doctrine of God our Saviour. It's even the slaves. No status. The lowest of the low. It is in our godliness in what we do that brings glory to God, not our success in this world. Well, he then is the sound, the healthy doctrine of verse 1 through to 10. A healthy doctrine that adorns the gospel of God, our Saviour. And we, I think we've come some way to answering the question, how does the grace of God get sinners to live in line with God? And the answer partly is, hey, this godly way of living is actually sound, healthy, it's good. It's actually the best way to live. It adorns the, the gospel. It's a beautiful way to live. And hopefully even the non-Christian world begin to see it. It's so good. Point three, the transforming doctrine. But to answer this question of how do we get people from the grace of God to living a life that is in line with God, here's the answer. You see in verse 11... The three-letter word for. Here's the basis for all that he said before in verse 1 to 10. But also, I think, it comes straight after that phrase at the end of verse 10, the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared. There's, I think, if you take your curse and you double-click the doctrine of God our Saviour, here it is in verse 11 to 14. This is a transforming doctrine that's different from legalistic Christianity, the gospel plus that we saw last night. It's different from cultural Christianity that, hey, you don't have to be any different from the culture, from the pagan. You don't have to be different, just pretend Christianity. And here's something that's different from hyper grace, where God just wants to give you one big hug and come as you are and remain as you are. No, this is transforming grace. Let's see how this grace gets sinful people to act in the line with God and his gospel. Point A, the grace of God. What's this grace? It is for the undeserved. You see in verse 11, it saves all people, all kinds of people, even pagan people like the Cretans. Verse 12, there's assumption we are ungodly, that we follow worldly passions before. Verse 14, we were lawless, outlaws, you know, beyond the law. We were like the outlaws in the wild west. Verse 14, we were impure. We needed purifying. God's grace saves the undeserving. Remember Stephen Bradbury? When you get the crown of life, nothing I did. And this grace of God has appeared. Appeared. It was there before. Remember last night, we saw that God promised before the ages something. Here's uh, verse um, 1 and 2 of Titus 1 again. Verse 2 and 3 actually come up on the screen. In the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began. He promised it before the ages began. When I suggested to you last night, what happened in time before creation? Here it is on the screen again. Before the beginning, God promised a new heavens and a new earth. And God said, let us save man by Jesus Christ. That is what God promised to himself, in himself, and that promise from eternity past has now appeared. The word appeared here in chapter 2 and verse 11 is the same kind of word as in chapter 1 and verse 
3. Go back to chapter 1 and uh, verse 3. This promise before the ages began, verse 3, at the proper time was manifested, appeared. How? Through the gospel message. God had promised eternal life, and now in chapter 2 and verse 11, salvation, this eternal life, has come to all. The grace of God appeared. He kept his word of promise. And it's this salvation that trains us. Again, having dinner with Philip, he helped me to see that it doesn't train us to say no to godliness, or say no to, it doesn't say, uh, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. It doesn't actually say that. It actually should say, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, as it has trained us, sorry, training us, having renounced ungodliness. So the salvation has come for people, it trains us, but it doesn't train us to say no to ungodliness now, but it trains us, us who have already renounced ungodliness at our conversion. And what it actually does train us for is to say yes to godliness, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. That's what it keeps training us for, us who have renounced the old life already at our conversion. That's true, isn't it? You go through the two ways to live manual at the, at the end. What do you do someone, to someone who says, oh, I want to go from A to B? You don't say, oh, great, let's pray. No, you don't, do you? You go through a whole lot of stuff that say, you sure? You want, you want to be a Christian? This is what it costs. You go through Luke 14, you know, you've got to give up this, give up that. Are you sure you want to? That is part of actually becoming a Christian, of accepting the grace of God, is that we say no to our old way of living. That is the hyper-grace kind of doctrine, that Jesus dies for you, accepts you, and you can remain as you are, is not only not right, it's actually not the gospel. Uh, there are churches, uh, like in Singapore, that I just uh, visited, hundreds, thousands of people go to these kinds of churches. And most of them, I want to tell you, are actually not converted because the gospel they have heard is not the true gospel. Grace, 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 but there's no call for turning away from your old life, turning away from, from living for yourself. We've just got to stop and think, isn't it? That if Jesus has died for you, if anybody has sort of died for you, it must change something. You can't just, you know, walk off and not change anything. A couple of years ago, there was a drowning in Singapore. Uh, some uh, family of little kids were swimming in a water sort of canal. Uh, sort of more waves came. The kids got into trouble. Some innocent bystander noticed them, jumped in, saved one or two of the kids. But in the process, got carried away by the current downstream. And they couldn't find him for some, uh, you know, one or two hours. But during that time, the mother of the kids who were saved by this man just got into the car and started driving off. And the people, the crowd were around, saying, hey, what are you doing? They tap on her window. How can you go? And she wound down the window and said, nothing to do with me, and drove off. Now, you can see that's, that's not normal, is it? If Jesus dies for you, it must call for some change. Theologically, we, we say we've got to be having gratitude to God, thanking God for his grace in saving us, at least that. But let's follow the passage here in Titus chapter 2 to see how does that grace trains us to say yes to living for God. Verse 12, to live upright godly lives in the present age. It influences how we live now. And yet, as you read on in verse 13, the life is really oriented towards the future. That is verse 13. To live godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, as we continue to wait is the idea, for the blessed hope. 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life, that's what God promised. Chapter 1, verse 2. It's appeared. Chapter 2, verse 13. And now, it will appear again. Appeared once in verse 11, Jesus' first coming. Now, verse 13, his second coming. It will appear again. God will keep on uh, keeping his promise. He's kept it once already by sending Jesus on the cross. And now, of course, he'll keep it a second time in Jesus' return. And what do we do, what do we see when Jesus returns? Look at verse 13. We see glory, a brightness, a, an overwhelming seeing, the, the magnificence, the honour of Jesus. Notice in verse 13, Jesus is not only the saviour. One of those verses which is very clear in saying that he's God as well, our God and saviour. Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus is, is underlined here. It's not a saviour who's you know, your, your good mate, your you know, friend and saviour kind of saviour. This is God who we're dealing with. And we're looking forward as we live this life, we look forward to seeing this Jesus, this God saviour who saved us. To see and wait for our saviour hero. In Australia, we love our sports, don't we? And in 2006, John Aloisi was the one who saved Australian soccer. And my son was about seven years old at the time. And uh, do you remember that goal? There he is, John Aloisi. He scored the goal that gave us the glory, that got us into the World Cup. We hadn't actually been in the World Cup for some 30 years, right? We were celebrating. He took off his shirts like we won the World Cup. But... <laughs> He saved us. He got us in. My son, uh, seven years old, was just loving soccer at that time. I remember Sydney Morning Herald was giving out little badges of all the team and things like that, collected all the badges. And then uh, John Aloisi was to appear at Pagewood Westfield for a signing and photographs. And so we went there and we lined up, big long line, waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, when we actually got to see him, when my son got to meet him, I took this photo. <laughs> he wanted to be there, to see his great hero. But there was a bit of dauntedness, a bit of trepidation, was there not? Friends, we want to see Jesus, the one who saved us, our, our hero, but he's God as well. I don't know what it's like to, to see God in heaven. I can't begin to imagine, and Revelation tries to tell us a little bit about it. But it's that mixture, isn't it, of joy and trepidation as we see the hero who saved us. And just looking forward to living that life for him, that undergirds all that we live now as we say yes to this godliness. That's why it motivates us. You're living for this God, this great one. But more than that, let's keep on going through the passage. What else does it say? What has this Jesus, this Saviour done? Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to sell us for good deeds. He redeemed us. Not only redeemed us from something, you see there, from lawlessness, but also redeemed us for something. Freedom is always freedom from and freedom for. Freedom for what? Well, he purified us so that we are zealous for good works. That's a great reason why the grace of God should lead you to live a way that pleases God that's in line with God our Saviour. Because look at the whole breadth of salvation. He saved you from there, which is an awful way of living, to now an awesome way of living. Why not live this way? Why go back to the old way? Why be like the Israelites? Oh, we want to go back to Egypt. No, no. We are saved to be zealous for good works. The purpose of our salvation. It's such a great life to live now. Let's live it. 
but more than that, it's not, it's not just a transfer of position. Notice in verse 13 and 14, it's a transfer of relationship, isn't it? He gave himself, this Jesus, this Saviour, verse 14, to redeem us for himself, that will become his, his possession. It's relational. It's relating to this Saviour, this Jesus, this God. That is why we don't just go back to the old way, we don't remain in the old way, because the old way is me as God. The whole point is, this other God has saved me, I now live for him, the new God, the new Saviour. The Jesus who died for us. What does it mean for us? Here's some applications of being transformed by grace. For example, when temptation comes, it's natural to live for our worldly passions in this life. And yet, because that is what Jesus has saved me from, and he's saved me to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life, then I'm to turn. Yes, when I first became a Christian, and yet again and again as well. I met a friend a while ago uh, in Singapore. He was a hairdresser of some famous rock stars. Uh, Duran Duran, if you're that old. And uh, you can imagine the kind of lifestyle he lived as a non-Christian following around these rock stars. Drugs, all kinds of things. And then he miraculously got converted. And as I met him, uh, he still had struggles you know, with pornography, etc. on the computer. And then he, he heard some Old Testament talks about how God saved the people out of bondage in Egypt and brought them through Moses and then brought them through Joshua into the new salvation, the promised land. And how Joshua, at the end of uh, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And so he thought, I know what I'll put on my computer screen. As for me and my mouse, we will serve the Lord. <laughs> and now, one greater than Moses and one greater than Joshua is here, who has redeemed us and for him. Well, then, in terms of the way we make decisions in life, as we understand God from eternity making his promise, fulfilling it for eternity. What does it mean for us in life? A lot of it is godliness, as we've seen in this passage. But also notice that Titus is to teach the gospel so that the church there can be godly. Chapter 1 is to get other people to teach the gospel, the stewards, the overseers. And that's what this weekend is about. Why not be someone who teaches people that gospel message so that they can have an eternity and so that even now they can live a healthy, sound, great life for God. It's hard, isn't it? Because it means giving up your parents. What's the phrase here in Titus 2? Your parents' ungodliness and worldly passions for you to have a successful life. For the overseas students, that's why they spend thousands of dollars on your fees, isn't it? For our locals, all the thousands of dollars <coughs> poured into your tuition. It's all for you to get a great life and to get ahead in the world. And you're going to throw it all away. I met someone who was at a Bible college in the US and he was going to sell his house in order to get through Bible college. One of our friends, uh, we met at Focus, very rich family, good relationship with his father. His father brought him a house at uh, not some, uh, was it New Parsley Bay, out on, you know, near Rose Bay, that kind of area. A house in a cul-de-sac overlooking the ocean and the harbour. But because he became a Christian, he decided to sell the house, to give the money back to his father so that he won't be just tied into just doing whatever and living the kind of lifestyle his father wanted him to live. When they sold the house, uh, Mrs. Westfield bought the house. That's how expensive a house it was. 
He gave up his uh, $200,000 golf club membership in Singapore, gave that back to his dad as well. And then when he decided to do full-time ministry, he sat his father down and he said to his father, Dad, I want to be a minister. And his father said, Son, you don't have to aim that high. He thought, Singapore, minister, you know, prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, kind of, you know. Uh, Dad, not that kind of minister, the other kind. Then suddenly his father hit the roof. Uh, even said, you know, I'm not going to talk to your children. It costs, doesn't it? Uh, my wife and I, uh, when we were in America, met um, a girl called, I think it was Sona, her name was, a Malaysian girl, who came to America to study theology in order to be in full-time ministry, single girl. She went there to do her MRE, or Master's in Religious Education. In the first year, she met a Malaysian boy and got married. In the second year, she was with child and a baby. And uh, they actually read Philip's book, uh, Guidance, and said, oh, very good, I just don't agree with this bit about contraception. Anyway, um, <laughs> every year I met my friends, there was another one in the oven, right? And I don't know how many kids they're up to now. But when she left, when she left, her big claim was, I came here in order to do full-time ministry. I was willing to give up all that my parents wanted and, and serve God. I got my MRE, but then I also got an MRS. And then I got an MUM. And that is what she lives to serve those kids now. That is living out the gospel. Well, then what is it to be in sync with the gospel? Let's wrap it up. The gospel of grace, the grace of God that has appeared on the cross. There's a famous illustration about a train. Oh, we've got just this time for it. Uh, when I saw this illustration, I asked... Um, I heard this illustration, I asked my friend who gave it, and he said, um, yeah, you can use it, but you must always footnote my name when I use it. I go, what? I Googled it. You know, it's actually, he didn't make it up. It's actually on the web, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but see, I, I, you, know, you must footnote my name. He said, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, I'll tell you why I'm not footnoting his name. It's a little illustration about train to show God's grace. Uh, you know, you know, heard about the train? Uh, there's a bridge uh, man of, who pulls a lever and the bridge goes up and down so boats can get through and the train comes along and the bridge is up and he has to pull the lever down. But as he's about to pull the lever down, he sees his little son, eight-year-old, got his legs caught in the gears. And so he's in a dilemma. Do I pull the thing and save the people on the train or let my son live? And so in the end, he, he reluctantly pulls the lever the son gets crushed to death. The people on the train are saved and rescued. It's a great illustration about the cost to the father. Right? Grace. But I'm not giving my friends a name because it's an awful illustration, really. <laughs> because the people on the train are just neutral, innocent bystanders. It'd be better if the people on the train were people who uh, hated the, the bridge man, right? That would be more in, in line with grace, giving someone what they do not deserve. But also, the death of the son is this collateral damage. Now, his death actually doesn't do anything to save the people on the train. Whereas Jesus' death does on the cross, he pays the penalty that we deserve. But thirdly, the son getting caught... Oh, that's just bad luck, you know. He didn't want to be there. There's no sense in which, like Jesus, he volunteered to go to the cross. But more than that, the whole illustration, it's just bad luck, isn't it? But what we're dealing with is with a God who planned from eternity when he didn't have to, and yet he promised to himself, that he would save mankind. That's the kind of God he is. And then he purposed that eternity and he delivered it. The son came and died for us in the now time. For us who 
are ungodly, are in worldly passion. We feel entitled to an easy lifestyle, to enjoy life, to an easy path, no stress, no worries, no suffering, encircled by our friends who look up to us. And yet even to people like that, Jesus came to die. God sent his son to die. Jesus gave himself for us. It was difficult, not easy. It was dying, not enjoying life. And he was deserted by people around him. And they only looked up to him because he was hanging there on a cross. You know how sometimes uh, we make promises and we think, oh yeah, you know, later on we think, it was a good idea at the time. But when you now have to go through it, oh, you have second thoughts. Well, the son, when he was face to face with death, the curse, the wrath of God. The father was face to face with cursing and pouring his wrath out on his son. They did not say, oh, it was a good idea at the time. I think I changed my mind. No, Jesus deliberately went to the cross. The God who never lies promised before the ages began and now at the proper time has manifested his word. The grace of God has appeared. Undeserved, costly, promised grace of God. When we receive the crown of life, we definitely won't be like the Americans, yeah, look at me. Now, when the crown of life is put on us, we'll at least go, but more, we'll just bow in absolute wonder and worship at our gracious Saviour God. Eternity past, appear now, eternity future. How are we going to live in this present age? Are we going to be in sync with God's grace? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you're so generous that you would save people like us. And we ask, Father, that that might so shape our whole thinking about life as we wait to see the glory of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So help us to live in that great way and healthy way of living. Help us to remember our decision when we turn to Jesus and away from our selfishness. And help us to live life now and to teach others around us that gracious gospel that they too can live that eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on iTunes to automatically download our most recent podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Campus Bible Study, you can visit our website, campusbiblestudy.org.